Good morning. This is week three. study in Ephesians and the recording's going which is probably the most important thing I do is to hit the recording button because a lot of people are listening to this way more than been in here so gotta get yeah. it recorded right yeah, it looks like it's working so anyway week three of Ephesians and I'd like to begin with prayer Father we we're grateful to be able to gather once again under your word, think about what you say, learn from it, and we ask that we would, your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our heart, that we may be enlightened, and see more clearly, behold wonderful things from your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> so week three, now before I get into week three, this is more for a, a follow-up from last week, believe it or not. Um, Lois had asked about what Greek manuscripts look like, or a question about them. I figured I would just show something that you all can look at in line, believe it or not. This is some secret stuff. This is Codex Sinaiticus.org. What is Codex Sinaiticus? It's the world's oldest intact New Testament that we have. Dated to about 350 AD. That, it actually has, um, if you go there, you can go through every page of it. It kind of looks like um, this in the background. It's just a bunch of columns and a bunch of, if you look at the words there, we're centered in on one and it's actually part of our text from last week in Ephesians. Those are capital Greek letters. As I said, they're all caps, no spaces, no punctuation. That's how they copied it, okay? And they didn't start even using small cursive letters until about the seventh century. So everything from like the beginning until uh, 700, 650 AD was written this way and they copied it word for word for word. And just to show you a little bit, this first one here is a shortened abbreviation version of Panuma. It's got three letters. There's a little bar above it you can barely see. Now, I thought this was interesting because this is from Ephesians 2.17 where it says, Give to us a spirit or the spirit. Mm -hmm. Remember, I went to that discussion. Whoever copied this in 350 AD assumed it was the spirit. And the reason I know that is because he abbreviated it and he put a bar over it. And the practice of a scribe was never to write the name of God. They shorthanded. And throughout this manuscript, Wherever a name for Jesus, a name for Christ, a name for the Lord, a name for God, and even the Spirit is abbreviated and put that little bar on it to say, this is the name of God, treat it as holy, let's not even spell it out. So they didn't even spell out Panuma. So, in 350 AD, they thought it meant the Spirit. So, despite 
I mean, they thought it was the Spirit. And they're a little closer to Paul in time than we are. So maybe they knew something we don't know. So they called the Spirit. Sophia is wisdom. And uh, this is this is one word. Apocalypsos, which is apocalypse, which is revelation. That's the name of revelation, by the way. Is apocalypse? We get that word from that. And they notice the ah is here, and then the apocalypse, so is the rest of the next line. So they just write a letter, and then they just pick up on the second letter, and they're just, they're just compacting it in there. It's the way they did it. And the revelation, and in, this is epinosis, the knowledge of him. So that's mm -hmm. just uh, for curiosity's sake. So you, <laughs> if you want to gaze at this, it's online. The whole thing is online. Pictures. Wow. Pictures of the actual document. It resides in London today. Um, in a museum in London. And thankfully it's there for people like us to look at. And there's all kinds of manuscripts like this online. This is probably the most famous manuscript, New Testament manuscript in the world, actually. Do you know where this one was found? It was found on, on the Sinai Peninsula. Hence Sinai. Yes. Okay. And, and do you happen to know which books are not included in this in this one? You know, because you said it was a whole New Testament. Because there's, you know, sometimes. Oh, it's got all. It's got all the ones. Okay. We, all the ones. All the ones that we have oh, okay. in three fifty AD. Yeah. Oh, okay. um, and the story is interesting about how that was discovered by. Uh, it was a German count who was looking for scriptures, looking for manuscripts, and he went to this monastery called St. Mary's at the foot of Mount Sinai and they had these sheets kind of like piled up just sort of over in the corner collecting dust and it's like looking at this going oh my goodness do you know what you have here because they couldn't read it this is, this is precious and it took a few years to get them to give permission to move it into a safekeeping place and now everybody can see it and rely on it. So it's the oldest intact manuscript of the entire New Testament. There are older manuscripts that are like scraps and pieces, mm. parts of books. This is the entire New Testament. Wow. So, back to Ephesians. Wait a minute. You said this was found in 613? 350. Well, it was, no, it was found in 1847. It was found in 1847, okay, still, but wow. it was intact from 350s when it was copied, when it was created, when it was written. But it hadn't been, the New Testament hadn't been codified yes, by then. Yes, it, it was codified by then. by then. Oh yes, it was okay. codified. This is proof. This is living proof. Oh, wow. It's codified to have an intact New Testament at 350 AD. All there. No, the codification of the New Testament, I believe, happened in about 180 when the Apostle John to be with the Lord. He had he knew what they all were. And when he wrote Revelation and he wrote that last little sentence, he wasn't just talking about Revelation, he was talking about the entire Revelation of the scriptures. Where you don't don't mess with this, you know that last yeah. sentence. Don't don't dare mess with this. Don't mess with this. That's John saying this be it. This is it. No more nobody else adds to this. That's about 180. So, 
Ephesians, written by Paul. Just a summary, a quick summary of where we've been. Um, um, the first, Ephesians 1 through 14, we covered in week 1. Just an overarching theme of that. God is Father. And the blessings of the Father, the Blessed One. It's a big theme, just to, just to say a quick thing. God is Father. That's what, was, that's what we got out of that, if you wanted to summarize it in three, three words. Last week, Ephesians 1.15 through the end of Ephesians 1... Um, it's really two parts. There's a prayer that Paul has to start it off, but when he gets into explaining God again in the last few verses, it's really about explaining God as Lord. Because, remember it said, the power, the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe, which he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand, above all power, rulers, powers, authorities, dominions, and then he gave him his head over the church. That's speaking of the lordship, the he's the Lord, Jesus is the Lord. So a summary of last week's would be Jesus is Lord. A summary of this week's, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is God is Savior. He's the Lord last week, he's the Savior this week. It's going to be revealed that he's the Savior. Another connection from last week that will play into our, our understanding of this week is that last statement of the prayer, or at least where it appears the prayer kind of tails off and comes to an end when he says that you may know the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe in verse uh, 19. And then he went on to show what that surpassing greatness of his power looked like when he worked it in Jesus. Now that he's got Jesus enthroned and the head of the church, now he transitions to the surpassing greatness of the power towards us who believe in this chapter. So verses 1 through, um, well, you can say the whole thing, 1 through 10, but primarily 1 through 7, it's going to be Paul making a case, showing us, helping us see the surpassing greatness of his power towards us to believe, towards people like you and I. Not only did he do great, display great power in Christ by physically raising him and enthroning him, he's going to display great power in those who believe as we read it. And he starts off in typical fashion. I'll just let you know it's another long sentence. Chapters 1, 1 verses 3 through 14 is a long sentence. 15 through 22 of last week was a long sentence. And chapter 2 verse 1 through verse 7, getting a little shorter, still a long sentence. One sentence. And also curiously, this is going to be obvious when you're reading the main verb of this one doesn't happen until verse 5. Okay? So everything before verse, well, verse 4 in particular is, is preparation for verse 5. It's, it's in support of verse 5. It's giving us a background for what he's going to say in verses 4 and 5 and 6. The main thrust of this sentence is 
verses 4, 5, and 6. That's where the, the main verb is. Actually, there's three main verbs. Made alive together, raised together, and seated together with Christ. That's, that's the main verb. And the main subject, once again, is God. God did that. Just like before, God the Father was the main subject of the chapter 1. He's still the main subject of this portion of chapter 2. It's still God the Father demonstrating his surpassingly great power towards us who believe by doing the same thing to us that he did to Christ. He raised Christ. He made Christ alive and raised him. He raised us. Sat him at the right hand. We're seated with him in heavenly places. Same. He's putting the same power demonstrating the same power towards those who believe that he did towards Christ. And that's just the big overall arching theme of how this ties in with what he just said. And getting into the nitty gritty now, the first three verses, as I said, are set up for verses 4, 5, and 6. And it's a description of our problem, which was only hinted at Back in chapter 1, when, when um, it's talking about the blessings of God the Father, and he chose us before the foundation of the world, and predestined us to be adopted as sons, and then suddenly he goes, oh, by the way, in Christ you were redeemed and forgiven. And it's like, wow, that means something, something went wrong. Why would God the Father be redeeming and forgiving holy and blameless ones chosen before the foundation of the world. There's, there's like a it's like he didn't explain what, what happened. Why is God the Father suddenly having to redeem these guys? Well, now Paul's going to say, okay, here's why he had to redeem them. This is the state they were in. These three verses captures the state of these holy and well, not just the state of those who were saved, the state of all mankind. Everyone, without exception, whether they believe or not. And it starts out, and you being dead in your trespasses and sins. And the being is, is translated, that's the way it should be, to let us know that it's not the main verb. It's a supporting verb of what's coming. You, by the way, who just so happened to be dead, were dead, dead in your trespasses and sins. And then verse 2, in whom... You formerly walked according to the course, is what most translations say, and it's not a bad translation. I'll explain that shortly. I put in my little translation eon, and I'll explain that later because that's what the Greek says. Eon of this world, and according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. So, this was our state. We were dead. First of all, we were dead. But, curiously, we were also, verse 2, we're walking. <laughs> we're dead, but we're walking. So we're dead men walking. I've seen that movie. <laughs> and there's a, a nice song by Jeremy Camp that expresses that yeah. sentiment as well. Dead men walking. That was the state of us, and it is the state, actually, of everyone. Every human that ever lived was still born, in a sense, 
dead in some sense, yet still walking, and walking about in the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit which now works in the sons of disobedience. We were dead, yet we were still walking. So the deadness is, he's, not, he's clearly not talking about physical deadness. He's talking about what we would term spiritual deadness, or our soul is dead, dead to God. Our soul doesn't see God. It doesn't know God is there. It doesn't know his influence. It doesn't know his importance. It doesn't see his beauty. It's dead to all that. It's like blind is another. He's talking about dead here, but he, we were talking about light last week. It's also the, you're blind. They can't see the light. They can't see the glory. You were dead, yet you were walking. And the word for walking is kind of like can mean, can mean just walking about aimlessly. It can mean just you're just walking around like, dare I say it, like a zombie. Dead people walking. Although that's not a good analogy. <laughs> I don't know why the movies say dead people walking or wanting to eat people. I mean, that, part, that part doesn't relate. Um, but we're, we're kind of like like that in a, in a very limited sense. We're not. We are walking about, and but we're being influenced. Verse 2, interestingly, lists three influences, and I kind of listed them there for you. There's the course of this world, there's the prince of the power of the air, and there's spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. And um, my note there, I said that the word for course is interestingly uh, the Greek word that we would pronounce eon, which means a long period of time. And it's a very commonly used word in the New Testament, but normally... Eon, and eon means a very long period of time. It happens in almost every book of the New Testament. In fact, it's the favorite phrase to describe eternity. Instead of saying, there's not really a word for eternity that's used very much, the Greek writers say, unto the eon of eons. That means the age of ages. Eternity, we would translate that usually forever and ever. So this is a word that means forever, almost Exclusively, However, it doesn't make any sense to use it that way in this context. According to the age of this world, it's like, huh? So that's why you don't see the ESV put age. You don't see any English translation say age or eon. They say course, which actually is probably getting at the idea rather well. Because you see an eon has another meaning that was rarely used in Greek. But, but Paul's using it here. It was a meaning that, of all people, Plato used when he was describing some of his allegories. If you ever read about the allegory of the cave and the allegory of the sun, he, he described this almost, the eon is almost like a person or a mythological figure that gives order to the world. It's the way, it's like the principles that the world agrees, this is the way you should do life. It's a very worldly way of thinking, but Plato made it like a person. And Paul's not necessarily making it a person, but he is saying the, the order of this world, the, as I said in my own footnote there, personified system of principles that govern the age. So it's not just the long period of time, it's also this, here's the rules that we kind of agree upon in this age and how to live. 
This is the course of this world. Now, it's interesting that this eon, I'll actually, just to show you, I'm not fluffing about this thing. If you look up on the screen over there, this is a Greek lexicon. That's the word eon in Greek. Long period of time. Yep, that's everybody agrees with that. But if you go down, there's all kinds of other definitions and possibilities. Segment of time is a particular, an age, an age. Uh, the age to come, talking about the eternal eon. The world is a spatial concept, so it sometimes means the world in general. But notice this last definition. The eon is a person, and that's what I'm getting at. This is the platonic view. So the reason I bring that up is I think it's kind of interesting that even though the eon is not technically a person, it's like a person, and we treat it like a governing person telling us how to live. And that's what all three of these influences are doing here. You have the eon of this world, you have the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit. And the prince of the power of the air, I think we all would assume we know who that is. He's probably talking about Satan there. Although he doesn't tell us for certain that's what he means, but it's probably what he means. What's interesting is the way he describes it. This is unique in scripture. Nowhere else does Paul or any writer give such an accolade to Satan. That's pretty lofty title. He's not the bad dude. Satan means, you know, Satan and the devil are accusers. They have bad connotations. But Prince of the Power of the Air is pretty cool. That sounds like it would be a good uh, name for a band or something. <laughs> <laughs> and just like the Eon of the, of the World might also be another good name for a band. It's just, the, when, when we were walking in our trespasses and sins, we were influenced by this prince, and we thought the world of him. I mean, it's kind of like the world thinks thinks he's, he's he's something cool. He's someone to listen to, someone to follow, someone to. It's 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 actually a lofty, honoring type of title. It's very interesting that Paul would describe him that way. But he's saying this is the way you walked. We all walked thinking he was the good guy. He's the good ruler. And all this worldly wisdom of all the people around us, that's the way to do life. That's how we're going to walk about. We're going to walk about with this course, this, all this, that's just what you do. And everybody does it. It's the eon, it's the, the course of the world. We just follow it. And we have this lofty prince, and we're proud of him in some sense, and he's telling us what to do. And then you got a spirit, a spirit working in the sons of disobedience. It's kind of funny that he listed three. It's almost like, False Trinity, huh? Mm. The eon corresponding to the rule maker, the prince corresponding to our Lord, the spirit, the works and the sons of disobedience corresponding to the Holy Spirit. It's like we walked about, and Paul's here, he's saying, we were influenced by a bunch of false, misleading, unstable influences that are strong influences spirits and princes and the common eon of the world is that that's an influence and everybody who doesn't know 
Christ is walking about totally influenced by that. And so are we. So are everybody. This is the problem we have. It's the way Paul describes it in very poetic ways. That's the problem. But then in verse 3, it gets worse. Because verse 2 sounds like, well, that's, that's not our problem. The devil made me do it. Right? We got the prince. I got to do what the prince says. The spirit. Oh, I'm, I'm moving in the spirit. You know, we have, those are the influences. Verse 3 takes the problem and internalizes it and says, but you're guilty. Verse 3 lists three ways in which we're guilty in a sense. There's another trio of ideas here. And I've broken them out for you in the note. Or actually, I broke it out for you in the way I translated it. He says, we all conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. We worked the desires of the flesh in the thoughts. And we were by nature children of wrath. Even as everyone else. Which ties in everybody. We were like the rest of the world. The whole world's caught up in this problem. This soupy atmosphere of a prince and a spirit and a way of doing things. It seems right to them. Yet, essentially what it is, it's following our own flesh, our own thoughts. It's being selfish. It's being turned inward. The real issue isn't with the fact we have these evil influences. That's a big problem. It's that we submit to them. We go along with them, and we ourselves follow, conduct ourselves in the lust of our flesh, the desires of, of our thoughts, flesh and thoughts, and the word thought there is just like a, a vapid thought, not a well-thought-out reasoned thought. It's just like ideas come into our head and we act upon them. So we're not really thinking it through. It's not like the desires of the flesh and of the mind or the soul or a, a weighty word like that. It's just thoughts that happen to be there that maybe were put there by a spirit or a prince or a thoughts that the world teases us with. And that's what we did, we were carried away with this stuff. And that's the setup. That's just to let us know there's a problem that needs to be fixed here. This is the state of all humankind. He's finally, Paul's finally explained it. This is why somebody needs to be redeemed and somebody needs to be forgiven and somebody needs to be saved. Because this is the state of everyone. This is the state that you were. Now, verse 3 also has an interesting thing, transition of, from third per, or second person, you, to first person, we. See that there? It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked. That's actually plural you, all of you. And then in verse 3, Paul suddenly shifts, includes himself. You and me, we, all. So he's including himself in the problem of sin. <clears throat> now, you can only speculate why he shifted the pronoun. I think it was just Paul making a rhetorical point. Um, some people think, oh, well, the first part only applies to Gentiles, and the second part applies to Jews and Gentiles. And maybe, I'm not going to say no to that, but 
it's not clear in the text. If you read this, that's not the idea you're going to come up with. Oh, I'm a Gentile. and um, No, Paul was had an influence. He may not have called him the prince of the power of the air, but he was influenced by the same spirit. The same. He was the son of disobedience. But it's just interesting that he shifts from you to we. And he actually does that a few times in this section. He goes you to we. That would be bad grammar in today's English. English teacher would mark it down. But it's more for, I think, rhetorical just to say, I am talking to you. No, by the way, it's actually me. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm, I'm in this. We're all in this together. This isn't me talking down to you. This is me explaining the problem we all had. And that's just the setup for the main point of the sentence, verses 4, 5, and 6. This is the subject of the sentence. This is in verse 4. But God... And then the verbs show up in verses 5 and 6. Made us alive together in verse 5. Raised us together and seated us together, verse 6. But God made us alive together and raised us together and seated us together with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. And that is the demonstration of power that he was talking about in the previous chapter. And so you probably covered that in chapter one, but maybe you could just, uh, the seated us past tense in Christ in heavenly places, what's the, you know, not that we want to do a deep dive because you're probably repeating, but how does that kind of work out, right? Because the other ones, past tense makes sense, but seated us in Christ in heavenly places. Sounds like a future thing, right? It certainly does. And yeah. yet he wrote it but, past. Yeah, I know. Still feels like I'm here. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. And I'll get to that. Okay. The power, the power that uh, is being demonstrated by God here, the setup of verses one through three. You see how that how that worked? We were dead, we were lost, we were blind, we're walking about, and God in his power made us alive. He made us alive and raised us and seated us, got us out of that. The picture is we're no longer dead in our sins and trespasses. We're now alive in Christ. We've been taken, we've been rescued, we've been saved from that soupy mess that the world is wandering about in. And this is powerful. This is a demonstration of power that we often, I think, take for granted. When we ask for God's power, we're not asking so much for God, raise me up. <laughs> We're not asking, we're not looking at God as a, as a life-giving person. We're looking at God to give us stuff. Usually we're praying for other things like that. We're, we tend to, I tend to anyway, pray for, be powerful in my work today or in my relationships today or in my bank account today or, you know, that kind of stuff. And yet the biggest demonstration of power ever done was, first of all, raising Christ. But he didn't just raise Christ. He raised with Christ, people who believed in him. So really that resurrection of Christ has us joined to him. And this is getting a little bit into your answer. How can we be seated in heavenly places? Well, actually, last week it said he raised Christ and seated him at the right hand. And we're with him as his body, so we're seated with him too. Wherever Christ went... All the souls that are with him 
in him, in Christ, are there with him. So we're seated with Christ in heavenly places, if you connect it to what he said last week, because that's where Christ is. We're where he is. And it's past tense because Christ was raised and ascended and seated in the past. Therefore, everyone who's in Christ is there with him in some sense. Not physically, obviously. This certainly doesn't look like the right hand of God or feel like it physically. But there's a truth to this in that since Christ is there and we're with him, we're there too. And it's interesting to ponder. Now, another practical thing to, to think about when you're thinking of this seated in the past tense is God, it's certain, God did this. The fact that we're seated in the heavenly places now, somehow spiritually in Christ, united to Christ, is like the down payment that was made on us in chapter 1 that guarantees that physically we'll be there someday too. It's the down payment, it's the surety that the Father is going to redeem his possession and we'll all be with him, possession. We'll be with him face to face. But we have the deposit of that Guaranteed through the work of Christ in the past, and it's real today. And just the fact that Paul uses the past tense is meant to give us encouragement that we're with Christ now, seated with Him in the heavenly places. That's where Christ is, and that's and another possible way of looking at this to help us appreciate this is the heavenly places. The word heavenly places. Um, I'm going to go to E's commentary on this one because he describes some interesting thoughts this I don't have in the notes so it's just something I felt like I wanted to do the idea of in the heavenly places doesn't necessarily the first thing that shouldn't come to mind is physically in the heavenly places this is in terms of Christ he seated Christ up there in the heavenly places refers to number one, according to Edie, and I think he's on to something here, it's the place of honor Christ is in a place of honor far above all things, far above that prince of the power of the air too it's a place of power he has the authority, everything subjected under his feet, that's that's spoken of in last week's text Psalm 8, the Son of Man is now in a place of power. But another thing that's kind of forgotten about the right hand, and, the, and by the way, there's verses in the Old Testament that talk about the right hand this way. Psalm 110 is one of them, uh, about the place of power and authority, um, where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. God saying to the Son, sit at my right hand, and then subjecting everything under him. Psalm 8 talks about that. Well, there's another, another thing associated with this right hand. It's the place of joy. So it's the place, and, and the psalm that talks about that one is Psalm uh, 16. The very last verse, Psalm 16, says, At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So he's drawing from three psalms to say, Think of the heavenly places as the place of for Jesus is the place of honor, the place of power, and the place of joy. Now, for us, the thing that's the best about that, I think, is that last one, the place of joy. We're with him in heavenly places, which means we're sharing his joy. 
in some sense, is power. There's honor. The church is actually honored. Well, that's going to become more clear when we get to chapter, later in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And the power of God to do amazing things is also present in us. Not in the way we would imagine, perhaps, but in us, in the church, us united to Christ, there's, there's power. It's the Spirit's power. It's not power we wield, per se, but it's power through us that God uses, and, and some of that's going to come out when we get later today's talk, and much more clear when we get later in chapter 2, and even into chapter 3. So think of, those are all thoughts to help you think of uh, what in the heavenly places means, and how it can be a past tense, because that's where Jesus is now. So, food for thought, I guess. Um, and I kind of like skipped over I moved ahead for verse 5 or 4. That's You don't want to skip over verse 4. That's the motive. Can't, you can't skip that over. Why did God do this? Why? Why did he do this? Verse 4 tells us why. It's the motive. But God, being rich in mercy, through the great love, with which he loved us. He did it because he's rich in mercy. He's got more mercy than we can imagine, which means overflowing mercy. He saw us wandering around in our trespasses and sins. And the father that he is, having chosen us before the foundation of the world to be his son, to be adopted, he had mercy on us. So the first motive listed is mercy. And then, as it said back in chapter 1, verse 4 at the end, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. Here's, the second, here's another use of the word love. God's love, he's expanding upon chapter 1, verse, I think that's 4, the end of 4, beginning of 5. He did it because he had mercy on us and he loved us as he loved us before the foundation of the world and chose us. Here it is. The love kicks into gear to go rescue us, to go redeem us. He loved us with a great love through the great love with which he loved us. That's what's motivating God. It's mercy and love towards us. That first person plural pronoun, including Paul, us. He's still using the us. So you don't want to skip over four. Yes, God put the power out there. He raised us from the dead in Christ, but why? Remember, it's touching back on the fatherly heart of God that we talked about earlier. He had mercy, and he loved us. The great love with which he loved us. And what did he do? made us alive. First thing he did. Even, oh, the start of verse 5, even, even though we were dead. It's just a reminder. Oh, by the way, you were, remember I told you in verse 1, I'm reminding you. You were dead. You were dead, but he had mercy on you as a dead soul. He had, he loved you. He had loved you from before the foundation of the world when he adopted you, had you in mind. And now he's acting upon it. 
and he does that. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive in Christ. He made the dead ones alive in Christ. He raised us. He took these dead souls wandering about, and he poured life into them breathed life into them. Remember Genesis story when he created man, Adam? The only creature in the whole creation story that God breathes into is Adam, right? He breathed life into Adam. And that was speaking of, there's something different about this one than all the rest. He's giving the life, his very life, a soul to Adam that no other created thing has. And when Adam sinned, that soul died in essence. It didn't, I don't want to, there's a debate as to whether a soul can die or not, but it died in the sense of Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3. Died so they could still walk around, but dead to God, dead to a relationship with God. I think that's a, a good way to think about it. I read an article about that this week. That the death is talked about in these these uh, texts. Don't think of it as physical death. Think of it as the inability to have a relationship with your creator. Death. That's another way of looking at it. Totally incapable of even wanting a relationship with your creator. Dead to your creator. Dead to your father. Dead to your savior, the son. Dead to the spirit that the spirit of life that was breathed into Adam, we're dead to all of that and we're influenced by these unholy trinity things that we talked about earlier. But God in his power made us alive again. He made us alive, not just alive by ourselves, but alive together with Christ. Each of these verbs in 5, 6, and 7, the three of them, made alive, raised, and seated have a prefix on them that means with, together with. Each one. So they, they put this prefix called soon in front of them. So it's not just um, made alive. It's soon made alive. It's not just raised. It's soon raised. It's raised with, together with. So these verbs are, they're just saying, hey, we were raised with Christ. We're in Christ. When he was raised, we were there with him. We're raised with Christ. We're joined to Christ. We're joined to Christ in our being made alive. We're joined to Christ in our being raised. We're joined to Christ in our being seated at the right hand in the heavenly places with Christ because that's where he is. We're, we're in Christ. And this, this can help explain. If you always wondered, ever wondered why Paul uses the word in Christ all the time in all his letters, this is a great place to help you understand how we're in Christ. We're in Christ because we were made alive in him. And we were raised with him and we are seated with him. We're in Christ because where Christ is, his people are. His body is. Remember? He's the head of the body. You don't separate the head from the body. It's not like there's a head sitting up there in heaven and the body is wandering around here without a head. No, we're, we're joined. Head and body joined. And 
Paul's helping us think through that. It's like, wow. Um, I'm going to try to formulate this question because I'm just thinking about something here. So it, does this mean with Christ raised, seated, or, uh, and made alive? Does that mean the potential to be raised with Christ? Let's say somebody um, before the foundations of the world, but they haven't come to know Christ. Mm -hmm. They're not raised with him yet if they haven't come right. to know him. So does that just mean that there's the potential for believers to be raised with Christ? So you're you pre-believer? Pre is that what you're asking? Yeah. Are you, are you asking before a person is how would, you, how would you describe it yeah I mean somebody who's not a believer right but before will be done, but will become has been chosen has been elected right. right will be he's been raised in Christ too he just doesn't realize it yet mm -hmm. I, the best way to look at that maybe it, here's a way it helps me is God's timelines on ours mm -hmm. God's kind of outside of time he operates within time, but he himself is so he already sees the end state. Mind blowing, but he does. So yeah, we're in Christ. It's like God the Father. Of course, you're in Christ. I see you in Christ, and we go. I don't see you in Christ. So our timeline is different from God's. So from God's perspective, these unbelievers who have yet repented and come have even yet been born. God's perspective, they're already in Christ. They were in Christ before the foundation of the world. But from our perspective, in our timeline, that doesn't get worked out until they hear the gospel and respond. So it's kind of like, that helps. Thinking of it in two different timelines. Our limited timeline that's stuck in time and we can't see out of it. And God, who sees all, knows all from eternity. And these are the words of God. This is a Remember, this is a text about God the Father, explaining God the Father's motives. God the Father's actions. So in his mind, you guys are already there with him. Even if I haven't created you yet. That's hard. That's mind-blowing. But that's kind of how I would think about it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, their name's already in the book of life. They just don't. They don't know they, it yet. They don't realize it. And, and, they, and they're not even born yet, some of them. I mean, maybe. Unless Jesus comes back tomorrow, they're all born now. So that, that's one way of thinking about it. This is, if you, if you just think about this stuff, it's, it's mind-blowing, but it's also encouraging. It's so, it just shows the Father the love of God that he has in mind. He's going to this great extreme to pull us out of this dead state, make us alive in Christ, raise us in Christ, and, and seat us with Christ in the heavenly places as I described earlier which includes the place of joy the freebie I added in there thanks to John Eady's commentary and that's the main point of this that's that's the one thing Paul's trying to communicate in this section up through verse the end of verse uh, 7 in particular like I said this is all one sentence he hasn't finished the sentence yet he's still got verse 7 to get but even before he gets to verse 7, he throws this little parenthetical statement in that he can't help but say in verse 5. It's uh, marked off with dashes, usually in, in parentheses in English translations. By grace you're saved. He just sort of throws that little, by grace you're saved. And then he gets back to his other verbs. By grace you're saved. It's like, 
I think, well, you could say it's just he was too eager and he had to get it out, and then God, the Holy Spirit said, hold, hold, let's wait till verse 8 to explain that better. But he, he, he writes it out, but it's, I think it's also helping us to think about this process as, he used the word saved. This is a salvation. He's saying, oh, by the way, you've heard of the word salvation? This is it. I'm telling you salvation in other words. I'm telling you, I'm telling you to think of salvation this way. This is the salvation process, guys. By the way, hint, hint, by grace you're saved. By grace you're saved. And, and it's plural. I, I put it in my translation. You're the saved ones. By, by grace, you, you've been saved. You've been rescued from this horrible dead state. That's what salvation is. You have been rescued. You know, we talk about, we use the word saved. We just throw it around. And we, we all think we know what it means. But when we go to an unbeliever and say, Hey, buddy, you saved? <laughs> if I were them, I would say, saved from what? What are you talking about? Saved, what do I need to be saved from? I'm doing all right. Maybe I should be saved from you. Um, so Paul's trying to explain, what does that mean? What are we saved from? We're saved from this dead state, this state of being influenced by the prince of the power of the air, this being a child of wrath. Actually, that's a, I didn't even mention that. Well, I did, but I didn't explain it. Actually, that's probably the best way to say what we're saved from. When we were walking about in that soupy, dead state of the eon of the age and the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience, we were children of wrath by nature. And that wrath, he doesn't explain here, but that's he's talking... There's wrath hanging over you that's just wrath. This is explained much better in Romans and Galatians. There's this wrath. You're children of that wrath. You're not, you weren't children of God. You were children of wrath, like the rest. So kind of tell us what wrath is. Wrath is God's anger against sin. So God has, as a just God, he has to, he's, he's justly angry at people and created beings that are some, that disobey him, that don't acknowledge him, that don't even seek, just, <coughs> that walk around in that soupy experience. So wrath is God, it's God's wrath. It's a wrath. And like I said, Paul doesn't really explain it here. You have to get this from other texts. The wrath of God, Romans is big on this. Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, and 4, and 5, and 6, and 7, and 8. It, wrath runs through that argument, and it's the wrath of God. And in Romans, it's pretty clear. He says you're safe from the wrath of God. And that's safe, the salvation here. So Paul's kind of in shorthand saying, oh, by the way, what I've just described is what salvation is. And it's salvation from the state of walking about aimlessly, but it's really ultimately salvation from experiencing God's wrath. Could it be also there's no glory, there's God's glory is not seen by, in, his, by the, in, right. in the children of wrath. And since... Yeah, that's, that's the way of looking at sin is... That's one way of looking at it, another way. My simplified version of this is we're saved by God, 
from God mm-hmm. for God. Mm-hmm. That's what this passage to me, if I had to give like a that's simple a good, kid good. version, although you they're more mature than I am. Saved against it. Yeah. So we're saved by God, from God, but for God, which we'll get to in question, I mean, verse 10. Yeah, we're saved. The little word wrath there is a shorthand for the saved from God that Paul's not elaborating upon in this text. You kind of got to know that from other texts. These verses remind me of Romans 6.11, where we're dead to sin but alive to God. Yes. This is the opposite. I can't help but make that connection in my mind as we're reading this. Mm -hmm. It's the opposite now. Yeah, he's using a different metaphor there. Alive to sin. Alive to sin. Dead to sin. Dead to God. Consider yourself dead to sin but alive to Christ in God. Romans 11. Romans 11, 36. 11. I have a Romans 11, 36. Yeah. We're from him and through him. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that's, what, that's what she said. So there, so this wrath, the children of wrath, we were, that's where we were, and we've been saved from it. And why doesn't Paul elaborate on it? I'll just throw two reasons out. He'd already written Romans. Yep. And basically, he's going to say in chapter 3, go read it. <laughs> <laughs> He's already written Galatians and Romans. It's like, you, you've read this. I'm not going to repeat myself. So you can get it elsewhere. And, and his, 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 remember, this is about God. This is God's mercy and grace and love and salvation. And God is primarily a father. He's not primarily a judge ready to just zap you with wrath. That is not his preferred mode of operation. He's very patient towards us, and he takes eons to save his wandering, lost children of disobedience to make them sons of God. The wrath comes quickly at the end of the age, and God's patiently postponing it, because even God doesn't like to do that, but he has to at some point. So the wrath is like, it's true that God is a God of wrath, but he's far more a God of a father. He is a loving, gracious, merciful, patient father. He's the fruit of the spirit. He's the source of the fruit of the spirit. He's all that. Wrath isn't listed in the fruit of the spirit. He does, wrath is something as the judge he has, to, he has to deal with sin. And he did decisively deal with it in the cross. That's theology there too, right? The wrath that we deserve was actually dealt with in Christ. And that's all. Let's go to Romans for that one, too. Romans is, explains that very, very thoroughly. And like I said, Paul is, he's going to have a little footnote in chapter 3 that says, you've read this, right? I'm not going to go into that. I'm here to talk about the amazingness of God and his saving power right now. So, if you want to know about wrath, <laughs> I've written about that somewhere else. And then verse 6, we've already said in heavenly places. Verse 7, 7 is curiously the purpose, another purpose, not, I wouldn't say the overall purpose, but it is a, a purpose to think about. He wants to think about why did God do this? Why did God raise dead ones? Well, we 
is for his glory ultimately, chapter 1. But this is a purpose, and the purpose that he actually says here in verse 7 is so that he might demonstrate or show forth in the ages to come surpassing riches of his grace. In the ESV says kindness, I says generosity um, towards us in Christ. So what he's getting at in 7 is there's a purpose, and this is actually going to lead into a later part of the chapter. So Ephesians is Ephesians is taking us somewhere. This is just like the introduction. It's going to start going somewhere in verse 11, actually, of this chapter. He's doing all this to, sh to demonstrate something, to show something, and show something to someone in particular, or some ones in particular, basically, in the ages to come, which could be translated to the ages to come, and the ages could be the eons to come. It's the same word that was if you dare translate it that way and think of it as, as he described in verse 2, as a course, a system of principles, God is basically showing the world, the ruling powers of the world, the courses, the, the, the spirit of the age, the governing principles of the ages to come, plural, not just the one he's writing to then, but to the ages that have followed for the last 2,000 years and for the rest and to eternity. He's using this salvation process of saving people and seeing them with Christ to demonstrate something about himself. And that something about himself is just how great, how expansive, how that word there for surpassing is the same word that was surpassing great power in chapter 1. Surpassing wealth of his grace. He's, he's, the people he saved are being shown forth as this is where my grace is. You want to know about my grace? You want to see my grace in action? Look at these people. Look at this collection of people known as the church. Look at the people on earth who have been saved out of this course of the world. Look. and it's, 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 Verse 7 is not primarily talking about showing off his grace in heaven. I mean, he, he may be talking about that, but he's primarily talking about the purpose he's creating a body of believers here on earth which he's going to start talking more about later, is to show his grace to the people on earth and the rulers on earth and the authorities on earth. The church is God's display of his glory on earth would be the way I would summarize verse 7. That's God's purpose in he's using these saved ones, these raised up ones in Christ, to demonstrate the wealth of his grace in generosity towards us in Christ. The reason I use the word generosity there is because um, he used the word wealth and riches. It's the wealth of his grace, how generous his grace is. He's showing just how generous his grace is to the whole world. 
by look, look what I did for these people. You want to see me in action? You want to see my grace in action? Look at what I did for these people. I saved them. They're in Christ now. And this, this grace is towards us who are in Christ. Towards us. And the, and the preposition there, towards, isn't just the normal preposition for towards. I made a footnote about that in my translation. It's the preposition epi, which is kind of like enveloping, surrounding. It was the same preposition that was in front of gnosis, epi, epinosis, knowledge that just envelops you because you know so well, you know God so well. Well, here's this grace envelops my people. It's not just, it's towards them, yes, but it's towards them in a way that they're just smothered in it. They're smothered in this grace. It's on full display. It kind of harkens back to chapter 1 where he said, remember, he lavished grace upon us. It's that idea. Lavished. He lavished grace upon us. And this is another way of saying that. That we're put on display. We're put on display as to show how wealthy and generous he is in dispensing grace and enveloping his people who are in Christ. And he's doing it, really, so the rest of the world that's lost, and all the rulers and authorities as well, are going to see it. Can but, I, so but how can they see it? Yeah, that is the same thing I, I was going to say. How are they going to see? They're dead. Yeah. They can't see. They're blind. Well, I, I guess the Holy Spirit has to get busy then. Well, yeah, and like I guess eyes. that's where I struggle yeah. too because it looks like it shows timing, but it doesn't. It's, it's like demonstrate to whom, and I'm having trouble finding the to whom both. But I think for the same thing that Lois is saying, because for those that are in Christ, that, that almost makes sense to me. You know, I can look around the room and yeah. say, "Wow, you know, God has demonstrated His power in all of us who believe." But to the to the lost. And to Satan and his dominion, it's like no register. So I, I have, I have a hard yeah, time. Well, you have a hard time believing it. I'll, I'll throw that out. What he's saying here is, if the church is the church, the world is going to see God's grace. And I think God is using the church as his means of drawing more people to him. Well, but into those, yeah, who are and, see. Searching and seeking, we are. What's that scripture about? We're a, a sweet savor, a perfume. Right. To an aroma. those, an aroma. To those, to those yes. who who are not, we're going to be a stench. And so, that that could be too. It could be both ways. It's right. like the aroma that's going to make the world more entrans and against us, and it's also the aroma that's going to draw those who are, have yet to come in. The church is. God's chosen way of displaying his grace to the world, whether you respond to it positively or not. Mm -hmm. the, the church is where this collection of saved people is God's way of demonstrating his grace to the world. We see it in operation in other people. I mean, that's, I think if you look back, you can remember how you came to know the Lord. It had a lot to do with people living out in a church environment, seeing God, seeing the love of God working out amongst people that you could physically see is where it started. You started to get interested. 
in the relationships and the love and the sacrifice and all the stuff that was so like that's not what I'm experiencing and then there's a draw and a curiosity and I think God's using that that interaction we have with each other the love actually that's chapter 4 of Ephesians remember speak, it's, it's all about how we relate to one another in love chapter 4 and 5 that's going to draw people God's using his, his goal is to create a group of saved ones to demonstrate his grace to throughout the ages to the rest of the world to all the lost world and actually in birth could the coming ages though be future it could be yes because I was going to say it could be movies in heaven yes I'm right <laughs> I, yeah. well, I mean that's the way I look at it I, I look at it as that we're going to you know God's going to replay the things that we didn't see as, well the suffering you know how he was okay. using different things I in see. our lives to draw them closer draws closer to himself and how he did amazing things behind the scenes to save people and stuff like that so you know yeah. I mean you know that's we're going to be glorifying God right well what better way to glorify God and see how he Big how, well yeah see how, how he so. worked that we didn't understand right so. things, things that were going on that, I want to know that, yeah. Right. yeah I don't know actually go to chapter 3 verse 10 says this 3 verse 10 helps explain it too it's going to kind of repeat it in chapter 3 you may somebody read that in English if you have it so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Mm. Which I believe is to help us explain what I think he's getting at in chapter 2. Right now, we, the word now, the church, the church as we know it now, the manifold wisdom of God's on display too, according to chapter 3. So the church displays the manifold wisdom of God and the grace of God. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, now that's a different audience, though. Maybe that's not the earthly audience. Could be. I mean, it, it says rulers be. and authorities in heavenly realms, which is also kind of curious too, because are these positive rulers and authorities or negative rulers and authorities? Because I would think that rulers and authorities on the good side is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm not. I don't know of other rulers and authorities identified in the scripture that are in the positive sense so this would seem like the negative sense of rulers and authorities but aren't they the ones that you talked about up in um chapter one first yeah uh, well verse two the course of the world the prince of the that's that's there. what i believe they are yes. yeah so and, the, and so the, the negative one yeah the yeah. negative ones and and also remember last week christ is seated above the rulers and authorities so the idea there is more negative ones but He's, he's above the positive ones, too. He's above them all. It's a demonstration to all of them. But it's also a demonstration to all of them now, according to chapter 3, verse 10. And I believe that the now is what is also in mind in chapter 2. I don't think that's pushed that off to the future. The church is hopelessly useless to everybody until the future, and then we all suddenly see the grace of God 
makes more sense to me that the point of the church is to demonstrate the grace of, the God, of God to everybody out there. Mm -hmm. And God used that demonstration to draw others to him. So, sure, it can talk about the future. But I think it also talks about the present. So where are we at? We're almost done. Not really. I've got eight, nine, ten. The sentence ends after that, by the way. And he throws a couple other little short sentences to explain himself. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. A lot of you have memorized those. Those are very, 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 very famous and beloved sentences. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from your own, but it's God. Not from works that no one may boast. That's one sentence. The second sentence is for, verse 10, for you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That God created that, uh, let's see, and that you may walk in them. <laughs> Which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. I'm trying to translate on the fly there. Um, so, two statements to help clarify what he's just said. You mentioned the word grace. Again, so verses 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved. Now he's going to explain grace in further detail. And at the end of verse 8 and 9, he says, not from works. And verse 10 is going to explain the works. So he's going to explain grace and works in these two verses. And a little statement for for by grace and for you are his workmanship those are whenever you see the word for it's an explanatory statement it's trying to explain something that's already been said further to help us help us understand it better it's i think it's interesting that most of our favorite verses to memorize begin with for by the way um for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two or sword. They have fours in front of them, which means they're they're important. But what it also means is it's not the main flow of the argument that we're taking them from. Those statements go in there to say this this text is about something else. Well, the text was about God saving people from being children of disobedience, children of wrath. Now he's going to explain that a little further. I listed some of that. God did so to demonstrate his grace in the work. This grace, what he's trying to say here is it's God's work. For grace, you've been saved through faith. And this, this salvation, this grace and this salvation are not yours, not from you. They're not sourced from you. This is entirely, he's reiterating in case you didn't get it, God's the one who did this. It's all about God. God's the one who did this. It wasn't you. It's not from you. It's all God. Grace is entirely from God. Grace is the gift of God. That's what verse the end of verse 8 says. It's the gift of God. This grace is entirely from God the Father. I'll just say it's the God the Father's grace. 
And as I said in an earlier session, just think of God's grace is always bestowed by the Spirit. So it's really God the Father dispensing the grace of the Holy Spirit. And it's His work. Yes, we appropriate it through faith, but it's His gift. It's His work. It's not ours. And He reiterates that in several ways. Right there in 8 and 9. And that's the point of 8 and 9 is to say, oh, by the way, this whole salvation process, nothing to do with you, per se. It's God saving you, but it's God's work. It's his gift. You don't deserve it. You didn't do any work to earn it. Just to explain that. And then the final verse, now he's going to explain work. I, I mentioned grace. Now I'm going to say, oh, by the way, what is the work of God? And he actually says, you're, you're the work of God. Right? He says, for you are God's workmanship. And, interestingly, he used the word create. He says, God's created, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, normally when we think of the word create, we think of the creation, the first creation, right? Well, this is, this is a different creation. He's not talking about that creation. He's talking about a new creation, as he'll talk, as he talks about in 2 Corinthians, right? We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. This isn't everyone. This is the saved ones. God not only saved us by grace, he saved us for a purpose. Well, one of the purposes is to be part of the church and display the grace of God to, to everyone and the manifold wisdom of God, according to chapter 3. Not only a display to the whole world, whether they're positive or negative, we're also his workmanship ourselves. We are created. We are works of God. And we have, he's created works for us to walk in. He's given us a purpose. We have specific works that he prepared beforehand to walk in. God created us for that purpose. The works are already in place. They're already written down, if you will. They're already predestined in a sense. We are supposed to walk in them. That's what our purpose is. And I thought it was really, really interesting that that last verb there, we are called to walk in, contrasts very nicely with the word in the same walk word in verses 1 and 2. We were formerly walking in the course of this world. Now we're walking the works that God's created for us. He saved us from walking in a bad way to walking in a in good works way. The works follow. The other theological thing is here. He created us to do good works. The good works didn't save us, but the good works definitely follow us because he created us to do the good works. That's what he for us to do. That's what he's, dare I say, it empowered us to do. 
The new creation is designed to do new works, good works, and we're to walk in them. And this word walk won't go away either. We formerly walked this way. Now we're called to walk this way. Chapter 4, verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brothers, to walk in a manner worthy. When it comes to the commands that he'll start unveiling in chapters 4, 5, and 6, the very first command is walk in a manner worthy of the callings that you've been called. Because he saved us for that reason. He created us to walk in those works. And the first command out of his mouth in chapter 4 will be, okay, now walk. Walk in it. Walk in those works. And so he must have had in mind the, um, the influences of the world up in verse 2. That we are not to be walking walk in that. In yes, the temptation is we can still walk that way. We can still choose to walk that way. That's right. And he's urging us, don't walk that way. Walk in the way, the new creation way that God's saved you for. And, and we have a choice there. Question and clarification. Mm -hmm. So verse 10 is really a call to live for the Lord, to live in your new purpose. It's not what some people interpret as find what your purpose is that God has for your life because it's already been made clear. Yeah, it's made clear. Right? This is not God prepared beforehand for yeah, That's my question. He, he's the he's the subject again. God keeps popping up as a subject of all these things. So it's not so much what you do, although it is, it's who you are in Christ and yeah, then he will work out his grace in you to live in this manner that's worthy of the that's calling right. that you've received. So it's more about abiding in him and his work that's going to take place in our life than to try to go on a quest to find out oh, what is the work that I'm supposed to do for God. It's already prepared. Mm -hmm. Our quest isn't to try to figure out what it is per se. It's to walk in it. It's already there. It's just walk. Walk in a manner worthy, which will be explained in chapters 4, 5, and 6. How do you do that? Look at chapters 4, 5, and 6. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 don't talk much about divining where I should go, who mm -hmm. I should marry. It's, it's not about that, right? It's, you're, you're stuck in a church, and you've got issues now. Maintain the unity. It's going to be hard. Speak to one another in love, because you're not going to want to. You know, We have opportunity to walk in these works in the very church community that he's planted us in. So yeah. So this isn't about vocation. No. It, the context wouldn't indicate that at all. Right. It's one of those verses that's quoted. This, this out is taken of out of context. Right. And you can see where how it fits in the context. It's. So it's I appreciate you taking the time to unpack that for us. Thank you. Certainly. He's explained. He's explaining what he means by works. Mm -hmm. Not your works. God's work. God's gonna do it. It's, it goes right with the verse before it. Not from you. Not from you. That you could post. Okay. Any other questions? No, Jim, but it's so good. It's so yes. good. Yes. 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 Thank you. Thank you.